Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, January 6th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. So, it appears that the Democrats have taken control of the Senate with a 50-50 uh, uh, equal majority only because the vice president, the incoming vice president Kamala Harris will be able to vote uh, in case of a tie. And that effectively gives Democrats control of the Senate. Democrats now have control of the Senate and of the house and of the presidency. And as of two years and two months ago, uh, Republicans had control of the white house, the Senate, and the House of Representatives, um, so that, uh, Noah, the piece that you and I wrote together at the end of the 2016 election, which we called Bear Ruin Choirs, we pointed out that uh, Barack Obama ended his two terms not having uh, lost all of these down-ticket, down-ballot races, a 1,000 state uh, and local legislative offices, and had lost the House and the Senate and the and the White House. And Donald Trump uh, managed to do it in four years as opposed to eight. Uh, and yeah, did not get himself reelected. That's something of a feat. Um, the, it's different insofar as the real carnage for Democrats over the eight years of Barack Obama was way further down the ballot at the state level, at the legislative level. Um, which really decimated the Democratic Party's farm team, and they had to go through a, a real rebuilding process that Republicans sort of escaped, um, particularly in the in last in November's uh, results were uh, confounding because Republicans did actually pretty well, um, but what Republicans now face is a real a real profound conundrum because the trends which were multifarious um, that were pushing states in the Sun Belt away from the Republican column, like Arizona, like Georgia, accelerated and intensified over the Trump era to the point where, you know, Donald Trump took office, where both these states had not, you know, Georgia and Arizona respectively had not voted for a Republican president since 1996. A Democrat. And both were represented by two Republicans in the Senate. And now they're pretty much blue at the federal level with the, you know, Georgia's delegation is, I think, more Republican by like two, two people. Um, but they lost two seats there over the course of this year and they held on to them in, in 2020. So um, the, the alacrity with which these states in their white, affluent, educated suburbs have been moving away from the Republican column has been um, countered by the uh, Republican strength in the upper Midwest in places like Ohio and Wisconsin, and even Pennsylvania and Michigan to a lesser extent. But what they have to, what they've decided they have to appeal to them, what their, their pitch is to these voters, Republicans, is to overpromise and underdeliver. It is a classic populist um, fallacy, a classic populist trap, and they don't seem to see any way to escape it. They, they are pitching them grievance politics and, uh, creating enemies that for them that they promise to fight, but they cannot because they do not really exist. They're creating ghosts for them to chase. And this fraud that they're um, perpetrating here is a dead end. I think they recognize it, but I don't think they know how to get out of it. Okay. So let's, let's unpack some of that. So what you're, what you're saying is uh, that they overpromise and underdeliver because essentially they're promising to win a culture war that is not winnable as a political matter. Uh, that they Part can one. right, and that uh, secondly, uh, they are overpromising and underdelivering on the notion that you can what over. I mean, at the Let's at, take the, at the current yeah. moment, at the at this moment between the between the uh, election and the inauguration. Um, we have a we have a, a outgoing president confidently assuring tens of millions of people who seem to be listening to him that the results of this election can and will be overturned. Uh, he did it this morning. He literally did it this morning. He tweeted out 
The Republican Party, and more importantly, our country, needs the presidency more than ever before. The power of the veto. Stay strong. Stay strong for what? He is going to be out of office in two weeks. In two weeks, there is no way for him to retain the presidency. He is convincing people that this is a possibility. This is the ultimate overpromise and underdeliver of, of, of all time. And we saw its effects in Georgia yesterday, where as a result of spending two months telling people that he won an election, the election was rigged, the Republicans who were in charge of the election process rigged the election process, that is voter suppression. He suppressed the Republican vote in Georgia by convincing enough people that it was futile to vote that Republicans lost these two Senate seats. Um, There is no question that Democrats hit their targets. Democrats voted in the same numbers and slightly more in some places. And Republicans didn't turn out. Republican turnout was roughly 15, 10% less than it was in November. 85 to 87%. Democrats were closer to 100. And in some places, in DeKalb County, apparently, it was over. It was better. They turned out better than they did. Okay, so the first the first part is cultural. The second part is on policy. And let's take, for example, and I think I might do something on this later, the $2,000 checks thing, right? That was a lie. It was always a lie. What, wait, what wait, Donald wait, Trump wait, did. What, what, what $2,000 checks thing? Okay, so what over the course of, say, September into November, uh, Democrats became very recalcitrant, very stubborn about a second, a fourth phase of COVID relief. They wanted to stall. They wanted to, this to hurt Donald Trump. And they did so until after the election. And after about a month of licking everybody's wounds, they all, everybody got back to the table. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, Steve Mnuchin negotiated this agreement. And when the deal was done, and by done, I mean done, the legislature, both chambers had passed it. It was going to the president's desk. Trump said, no, 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 not good enough. I'm, I'm going to outbid my own treasury secretary. I'm going to say, you know, everybody needs $2,000 checks, which provided Democrats with a rallying cry around which they absolutely did coalesce. And Democrats passed a version of this in the House and started putting a lot of pressure on the Senate. And the Senate was not going to do this for a variety of reasons, most of which because it would require renegotiating the entire package. Second, it's terrible policy. It's fiscally unsound. And we spent already $5 trillion we don't have. Um, so what this did was essentially, and, and the only reason why Trump did this, and people have spoken off the record to reporters about this, is because he was really mad at Republicans in the Senate for not lending credence to his paranoid fantasies. And all he wanted to do is stick it to him. And he sure did. But he gave the, he gave these voters something, you know, a promise. The promise was that they could vote themselves the treasury. And that's an enticing promise. And it's one that populists are frequently make um, because, you know, people respond to the idea that they could get a lot of it's not free money, it's, it's their money, but people can respond to that sort of thing. But, wait, but it's wait, irresponsible wait. politics. Wait, it's not just irresponsible politics. This is one of the dumbest political moves we have ever seen, because what did Joe Biden's close? What was Joe Biden's closing message in Georgia on Monday? It was vote for Ossoff and, and Warnock and we'll get you two thousand dollars in stimulus in, in, in a check. I mean, it was literally a bribe. He went and said $2,000 was a number that Donald Trump basically incepted into the political conversation and got the Democrats control of the Senate as a result of it. I don't know that I don't know that there's ever been anything like it. I can't think of anything like it. Because it just made all he did was set up uh, every um, reasonable Republican who was against it to look like the bad guy. I mean that was it. So the so the, so he turned the Republicans into the into the party that doesn't care about you. And we right. can't say that wasn't his objective. Well, right. we don't know what his objective was. It's impossible to discern an objective. I mean, he went to Georgia. He campaigned um, once again, as in 2018. He went places and campaigned, and they lost. So you know, we are we are now going to be in a period in which there are going to be recriminations, and the recriminations are going to be. Who lost the Senate? Who lost the House? Who lost the presidency? And the the Trump wing is going to argue that it was lost because of inconstancy, a lack of faith, uh, double you know, aside from fraud and things being stolen and uh, evil Republicans in certain places. I mean, again, you know, the funny part about this is if everything that he were saying about uh, Governor uh, Kemp and uh, Secretary of State Raffensperger and all this were true and that they stole the election for him in Georgia, 
and Georgia's results were mystically overturned, Joe Biden would still be president well, this on is, January 20th. It's a weird, I mean, the only silver lining I can see uh, this close to what's uh, unraveling uh, right now is is that it is going to force uh, that Trump reckoning sooner than a lot of us uh, expected it to, um, because there's this weird sort of way in which the, the hardcore Trumpists have turned into a version of the socialist left, which is to argue like real Trumpism was never really allowed to flourish, right? He he was thwarted by all these terrible, you know, rhinos and all these terrible people who wouldn't allow his his message of hope to, to uh, eternally spring forth. And the truth is, what we saw in Georgia is exactly the logical conclusion of Trumpism, which is fracturing of the party when it needed to stay together and undermining of the party's own message in a state that could have really gone either way with this this uh, special election. And he blew it up and he's happy he blew it up because for him, it, it, there is no party. There is only Trump. So the fact that a lot of uh, people who've been trying to thread this needle with Trump for four years now have an opening to say he just blew up the Senate. Like we just lost our majority. The Democrats will now legislatively have very few breaks on their policies. All the stuff that people were worried about before November is, is going to come rushing back and already is on, on political Twitter. They're like, hey, maybe defund the police was a good idea. You know, all these ideas are going to be back in play. And that's Trump's fault. That is Trump's fault. Well, there's more of a silver lining there, I guess, if insofar as you could see it as anything positive, is that, you know, now the progressive left really does feel like they're, they've, they've got the, the wind at their back. And they're going to demand a lot of things that, a 50-50 split Senate Republican or Senate uh, we can't deliver. Um, you might, you're going to see, now we have to contemplate a Democratic-led Senate under Joe Biden. So you're going to see his nominees go through easier. He might have more leeway to pick somebody who's a little bit more, less palatable to the Republican conference, which they've been doing actually for the last two months. A lot of these cabinets uh, picks were designed, were calibrated to go through the committee process that was going to be led by Republicans. So they dodged a bit of a bullet there. Joe Biden's going to get his judicial nominees. But what kind of legislation are we going to see? I mean, we're going to see, you know, tinkering with the, the marginal tax rates, probably. We're probably going to see these $2,000 checks now. I, Lord knows. Um, but are you going to see a filibuster nuking? No. Are you going to see, you know, that broad social legislation like you're talking about? No. And that's still going to frustrate the progressive left. They're going to feel like, these, we, you know, you have all this power and you're not using it. Even, but they don't have all that much power. Well, it's complicated because, um, you know, the oddity of this moment is that if you take the position, the last time we were in this position, which was George W. Bush coming into office in 2000 with a 50-50 Senate with Dick Cheney being able to break ties, which lasted for four months until the liberal Republican senator from Vermont, Jim Jeffords, announced that he was going to caucus with the Democrats and flipped control of the Senate to the Democrats. Um, the major piece of legislation that was under debate and that finally got passed, uh, aside from, in, at the beginning, there was a tax cut. There was a, a Bush tax cut. But um, with the Senate having just marginally flipped to the Democrats, um, Bush got a major piece of legislation passed. Uh, it was No Child Left Behind, which, of course, featured uh, aspects of education policy that were palatable to Ted Kennedy and the Democrats, which is why they agreed to a you know, grand bargain on a major piece of legislation. The lesson of that is if there is some legislation where Biden can bring, you know, can make it comfortable for all 50 Democrats and then maybe one Republican or two Republicans so that one or two Democrats can, for reasons of their own local needs, not have to cast a, a hard vote on something. Um, that's where you could look for real possibilities of deals. Like this margin is so narrow, is so slender, that um, that it will be hard to get anything done except as part of the budget reconciliation process. That's how tax bills get done. And that those the that is the one thing that the Senate that that evades the filibuster rules of the Senate is the budget reconciliation process. So you could get Biden tinkering with the tax code 
in the budget reconciliation process, but that's later in the year. I mean, I, or, I mean, you can bring it up as a budget bill. I, I, it's all very, you know, it's one of these things you need a parliamentarian to explain to you. But I mean, it's an interesting political situation that uh, everybody finds themselves in. Nobody is strong. I mean, that's the the ultimate thing is that is that uh, uh, Pelosi is not strong because her margin is five seats. Chuck Schumer, the new majority leader, will not be strong because he doesn't have a margin for, you know, he's got 50 seats plus the vice president voting. He controls committees. He controls all of that. All of that is very important, by the way, because it means that Biden will avoid, as Trump did, will avoid being subject to har you know, to, to congressional investigations that hamper and, and distract his ongoing process. That was the gift that was given to Trump by having the House and Senate in Republican hands in the first two years, that he escaped the scrutiny of, you know, even though the Senate Intelligence Committee went deeply into the question of Russian interference in the 2016 election, he was never, he was not put on the spot as he was from 2019 onward in the House, right? So Biden will avoid that. That's a huge thing to avoid. It's a huge distraction to be able to escape. Well, and unlike Trump, Biden also has is going to be aided and abetted by the media, as these uh, Georgia Senate candidates for the Democrats were abetted by a media that that failed to do its job of thoroughly uh, investigating and vetting and reporting on any you know potential problems. So, it's he's in an even better position than Trump was. I think. Look, I don't I don't trust uh, Raphael Warnock as far as I can throw him, but he was a good candidate. John Ossoff wasn't a good candidate. There's no reason why she should have lost to 80 behind Joe Biden by 88,000 votes only to come up from behind. That's a that's a failure of Republicans to turn out. But how annoyed must you be if you just pulled off this incredible victory and the entire media landscape is thanking Stacey Abrams? Well, you did this. She didn't do this. Who wore that? Her- yes. They're making her into some sort of a, of a totem. They're saying, thank God, Stacey, you really did it. Okay, but... She contributed. Warnock, but he's the candidate. No, but Warnock being the candidate was Stacey... To be fair, Warnock being the candidate was Stacey Abrams doing. The uh, Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee wanted a different candidate for that... For that I, can't, I can't remember who it was. Somebody who was... Nom- who, who made checked certain boxes, would have been less confrontational, less liberals, stuff like that. And she insisted on it being Warnock. So if you like Warnock, you've got to give her credit. He was her pick, um, apparently. So, you know, I mean, now if you like Warnock, but if you think that Warnock turned out to be a particularly, you know, canny choice, she's got to get credit for that because he was was her uh, guy. Now, let me uh, pull back for a minute and talk to you about our friends at the Bonson Group providing professional financial and investment advice in a field that is terrible. Because most financial advisors, lazy, disengaged, uninterested in the real work required of properly stewarding a client's assets. I mean, I have it on good authority that a very high percentage of those making a very good living as a, quote, uh, professional wealth advisor, end quote, do not work more than 25 hours a week. And if you get into the important stuff, like their understanding of how markets work, the intersection of public policy with investing, take just today the question of what the effect of a Democratic uh, Senate it might have on monetary and fiscal and tax policy in the coming year. Uh, the relevance of that and the Fed and modern finance, you might as well be talking to a teenage kid at a Starbucks. So look, the work ethic and intellectual capacity of so many financial professionals leaves a lot to be desired. So that's why you need the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal wealth management firm with over $2.5 billion in assets under management. With them, every single day is an intellectual journey. Client communications are a way of life. And every bit of the Bonson Group's perspective on the economy and capital markets has been generated by its own thinkers, its own experts, its own advisors. And that is fresh opinion given to clients who are all given their own bespoke family office experience. Read the Bonson Group's weekly investment commentary at DividendCafe.com. Read its daily market updates at thedctoday.com. But check out the Bonson Group for a refreshing antidote 
to the laziness and intellectual spaghetti that is today's investment advice industry. An actual economic worldview sits on the foundation of the best investment advice in the industry at the Bonson Group. So check out DividendCafe.com and the DCToday.com and get to know the Bonson Group today for your wealth management needs. Okay, so we've just talked about tax policy as something that might uh, uh, come into play. Uh, some other things, but we have this incredibly narrow margin in the House, incredibly narrow margin in the Senate, and a pretty weak incoming president. Um, so uh, the question is, can, can you combine uh, an incredibly friendly media and um, – you know, a, a great sense of relief uh, at the at the ideological and political and personnel changes at the top of American politics, um, and uh, uh, decades of of actual Washington experience that will be brought by the team that Biden is assembling. Can those overcome some of these weaknesses to get things done? That Democrats can then take to the public, uh, and particularly this, this new category of swing voter, right, which is these suburbanites that have basically flipped politics back to the Democrats from the Republicans. Are those suburbanites, they are not in the Democratic camp. They are not there for the Democrats. Democrats go too far, and they are going to zap right back. They are going to snap right back without Trump there. So does Biden, maybe Biden just needs Trump standing like a, you know, like hovering like a balloon over the Thanksgiving Day parade and not moving um, to say, uh, you know what, if you uh, if you screw with me and stuff happens and you throw me, you're getting him, he's just going to come right back. So you better keep me. Without that, um, what he's got, can he, this is a very tricky thing to manage. And I think in part, Christine, uh, as our uh, media columnist, um, in part because... Three, two, one, recording. So, Christine, as our media columnist, game out to me what it's like for somebody like Biden who will not get a proper feel for uh, for how he's doing politically because he will have the blocking tackle of the media pushing back against any... Uh, sense that he's going too far uh, in the other direction. He'll be cosseted and pillowed by, I think, by an admiring media that will be very defensive of him. And anytime anybody says, oh, he's going too far, it's like, you didn't say that about Trump. What about Trump? You didn't do this about Trump. Um, can, by, d- d- can, will, this is a major issue for Democrats. Like, they don't have a feel for what's outside their bubble in a very, very significant way because they're not challenged by the first responders uh, in of, uh, among opinion leaders. And uh, so you're saying they don't feel that, that, in, that amazing sense of freedom. Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> but I'm referencing Kamala Harris's plagiarized story about her toddler uh, awakening uh, to social justice. But that to me was a perfect- wait, wait, plagiarized from whom? Martin, Martin Luther, Luther King, King Jr. Yes, and, and who he's... figured this out? Who, uh, Someone some on Twitter. On Twitter? <laughs> and conservative randos on Twitter. Right. Exactly. And that's that's and not only a, a disgrace for the press, but a real pitfall. That yes. They didn't want to do the diligence on this. Well, and she's done this. She actually gave a, a, a lengthier and more embellished version of the same plagiarized story on C-SPAN on book TV earlier. And, and for me, that's what captures what you're what you're uh, asking about, John, which is it's not merely that the that they are defensive on behalf of the Biden administration. They're actually actively going to have to craft a narrative that is somehow going to wash away the sins of their resistance era Trump behavior. Because while they feel that, you know, they, they claim to be relieved that now, you know, democracy is about to be restored again, they really did need the villainy of Trump in order to justify their own uh, inability to be objective in their reporting. So I think it's it's going to be certainly be bad for the Biden administration and that they're not going to have as you said, a sense of what the average person really does uh, think about what's going on. But worse, 
we're going to have this process where they're going to be crafting a kind of very positive, you know, restoring democracy narrative that might not comport with reality on the ground for most Americans. And that will bring us right back to where we were right before 2016, in a sense. Here's my concern. John, you say that maybe Biden needs Trump hovering there um, to to be this kind of foil, um, this sort of uh, figure against whom um, Biden can say, well, you know, uh, you, you don't want that guy. Um, I think he'll have that. I think Trump will be hovering there. Where Where's he going otherwise? He's, it's not like Trump is getting over this. It's not like he's welcomed back and it, he'll be welcomed back into the mainstream um, entertainment world. Um, this is this is the role of a lifetime for him. Um, and I think the potential for Trump to continue to do the exact type of damage he's done on the way to, to conservatism, on the way out of office. And I say this is someone who has praised the things that I think he's done well. I've praised those to the heavens. Um, but the, the potential for him to continue to do the exact kind of damage he's done to conservatism over since November um, is tremendous going forward. Yeah. Look, I, I, I think that's inarguable, and I think it's so inarguable that, um, that this is the question that will animate all discussions going forward from noon today. We're, we're, we are, we're taping this uh, in the morning on, on the day in which Biden is, will be formally, you know, the Electoral College votes will be formally accepted or supposed to be formally accepted by the vice president, and of course, there's going to be a big scene, right? We that that's developing, and this question is: it's the Plato's Cave question again. Is he real? Is the are the shadows that he is casting? Uh, they have terrified, uh, or 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 thought to, or, or or looked at as some sort of weird political benefit for thirteen senators, something like that, one hundred and thirty members of the House. Uh, you know, countless Republicans outside of Washington, uh, these protesters who have come to town to be part of the Stop the Steal rally, uh, who've come to D.C. Um, you know, uh, he, we're looking at this and, and saying he is, his capacity to be a positive force for the GOP has now been conclusively disproven by what happened yesterday in Georgia, where special elections that Republicans should have won, they lost. And they lost because of him, at least 75 to 90% probably because of him, and in various complicated ways. Not that complicated. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say. Yeah. No, 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 it, no, it really no, isn't that complicated. No, no, I'm saying complicated because he depressed turnout. Because he depressed turnout, and instead of focusing on the control of the Senate, which was right. in the balance, right. he said we can overturn the last election. Right. Okay. Meaning, Jay, meaning uh, Jay Tapper at CNN piece, uh, posted a, an unsourced quote from an NRSC official saying that our polling looked really good until Josh Hawley said, "You know, I'm going to help us undo this thing." Right. And then well, they he, got they, they had okay. in their minds. Okay. So he so he is to blame for the loss of those seats just as his behavior in 2018 led to the loss of the House. And Republicans in safe seats, in safe districts that run, you know, 15 to 20 points in the Trump direction are now going to guide the Republican Party into a Trumpian post-Trump future when all available evidence is that the party's future depends on it running in the other direction. I mean, you know, it was arguable after election day that the that the result suggested that um, the 74 million voters that Trump turned out were uh, decisive to making sure that Republicans scored these surprising the surprising strength in the House and won the 10 or 11 seats that that they won that everybody thought that they were going to end up being net negative. Um, and so maybe Trump was good and bad. But I don't think you can say that now. I don't think you can look at this and say Trump affirmatively lost these two seats in Georgia, just as he lost the two seats in Arizona. I mean, Arizona and Georgia are now, you know, if, if, if we had had conventional politics in some fashion, 
Republicans would have four Senate seats that they now lost. It would be 54-46, not 50-50. That would be two Republican seats in in Arizona and two Republican seats in Georgia. That would have been like what everybody would have expected. I mean, the counter-argument that they're going to make is that Republicans did better when Trump was on the ballot and worse when he wasn't. And there's something to be said to that, to be honest, because his presence on the ballot does drive up turnout, in, mostly in rural districts and rural precincts. Um, and Republican candidates outperformed Donald Trump, where he um, is a drag on the ticket in places like the suburbs and along the Rio and in South Florida. Um there, those candidates did better than than Trump did. So it's sort of a mixed message, and Republicans are would be interested in reconciling that if it wasn't such a painful process. They just they they can't. I don't think they have it in them to tell their voters the hard truth. I'm just by virtue of what's about to they happen they today. May, they may not. They, know. they have no interest in telling them the truth. But they may not know the hard truth because the hard truth for a voter for a for a congressman. You know, in Oklahoma is a different hard truth for a congressman in the suburbs of Detroit. Like these are these. Yeah, but no, there's no truth being told right now. I mean, this is an abject lie and it's just a comforting lie, a preferable lie. It's, you know, it's like he's Democrats, Emmanuel Goldstein. Right. But they're actually it's it'd be like if Emmanuel Goldstein got a nightly television show that Big Brother put on. Um <laughs> And, and they're perfectly willing to play that role. They that's they want to be in the national conversation. Their objective as lawmakers Wait, who is, is the to media? be in the media. These lawmakers, all, 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 most of Republican Congress. Republican lawmakers, you mean. Yeah, well, lawmakers generally. Uh, Congress has generally uh, sacrificed its constitutional prerogatives um, in favor of getting media attention. And Donald Trump is the ticket to getting in front of a camera. And that's how you advance. So if that's your if that's your ticket to being a you know an important figure a political figure not a competent lawmaker but in something who, who, someone who's infamous and who gets a lot of attention in the press and I think that that really is a pathway to political success today. I, I have to, to the ticket to get there. Okay, I have to disagree with you on this because I think that's true of a certain number, a certain type of congressional player, you know, the ones that Yuval Levin talks about who are using institutions as a platform rather than a mold, right? And Matt Gates, people like that, or Eric Swalwell on the other side, however you want to slice it. Most senators and congressmen actually kind of evade the spotlight. You know, they do a lot of local, there are senators you have never heard of from states you don't know very well. I mean, if I said to you, I'm, you're, I, I'm not going to play a trivia, you know, make you Chris Starwald and play a trivia game. But, you know, if you can name the two senators from Idaho, it's kind of a reach to name, and there are only 100 senators, right? And and we're the sort of people who should know that. If you can name the senators who replaced people who ran for other offices, you know, there's some guy coming in named Lummis who is going to be a senator from somewhere. I can't even remember from where. I mean, that's what it's like Wyoming. To, why, okay, fine, Wyoming. But I mean, you know what I'm saying. So, so, I think, uh, I'm not even sure. right. But, and there are 435 members of Congress and 350 of them you have never heard of. So that is, and what they want, or they used to want, because I don't know what they get now, what they used to want was a lot of coverage in their local paper. They wanted uh, ribbon cuttings and, you know, and news about how the, some grant was coming in through their administrations or they help individual people. They go home and do a lot of town halls. They wanted local attention and not national attention. They wanted to go under the radar, keep their jobs, be a power broker in their local area, which was important to them, and not be a focus of controversy. So you have this wild split, which is that for most Republicans and for most Democrats in American politics, what they want is nice, cool, quiet, you know, then people come and they kiss their ring and they help their kids get jobs. And they do whatever it is that they can get as a power broker, but they don't want to be Matt Gates and they don't want Trump. And th- that is not what they wanted. They never wanted Trump. 55% of the Republican party in general didn't want Trump even in 2016. He won them over. It's not at all clear to me that if another president had been, another guy had been president, if, you know, somehow it had been Romney, I know it couldn't have been Romney, but if it had been Romney in 2016, he wouldn't have gotten 90% support from Republicans. 
We don't know that. That's maybe the nature of negative partisanship in the culture wars. I mean, Trump was that on, you know, nuclear, you know, like, like added nuclear fission to the, to the negative partisanship and, and, uh, uh, and, and the culture war. But, but, uh, you know, I think a normal politics restores a lot of politicians to the standard equilibrium they want, which is they don't want all of American politics revolving around one controversial figure about whom all of their actions have to be taken in relation to this one guy. Okay, but then they have to, I mean, I I actually see it from the perspective, if you look at the Republican Party, it's almost like it went through a midlife crisis in the early teens and, and, you know, about what it stood for, whether it was responsive to voters. And then it, you know, during this midlife crisis, it went on Tinder and it, it picked this like, crazy inappropriate person to have an affair with that's trump and now we're at the and, and he's kind of gone around and wrecked things he's the sort of republican party's home wrecker and now they have to decide am i going to make this guy my trophy wife and ditch the old you know <laughs> previous wife or or am i going to kind of wake up from this moment and say i've made a terrible mistake and i mean that's kind of such a, a great it. analogy <laughs> this is such a great i so i'm so enjoying this analogy. but it's it's the friends and family who've watched who are in the orbit who are going to have to, someone's going to have to stand up and take the party aside and say, now's the moment where we are going to have this honest conversation with you about what we've seen you do. You're embarrassing yourself. No, she's really nice. She's really, he's really, no, I mean, look, I can see why. Very charismatic. You know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. No one can fix him. No one can fix Lindsey Graham, no, I can fix him. Right. Right. I can fix him. I can bring it, you know, really, if I just work with him, I can fix him. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that is that is just uh, totally great. And you know what you need when you're going to be in that kind of position? You need uh, Mac Weldon. You've heard it from me before. It's the premiums men's essentials brand that believes in smart designs and high quality fabrics. Mac Weldon offers a one-stop shop for men's basic sock shirts, hoodies. Underwear, polos, and active shorts, whatever you need, Mack Weldon has you covered. Unlike the assortment of department store brands that make up your top drawer, all of Mack Weldon's basics have a consistent fit you can count on. You're not just going to look great in Mack Weldon. Their underwear, socks, shirts perform well, too, from working, going out, going to work, or on a date. Mack Weldon is for everyday life. Those socks, those shirts, those hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts with comfort and a consistent fit and a wide range of customized fabrics that can keep up with you no matter what your day looks like. And Mack Weldon has created a totally free loyalty program. Level one gets you free shipping for life. Once you reach level two, by spending $200, Mack Weldon gives you 20% off every order for the next year. Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep them and they'll still refund you. No questions asked. That's MacWeldon.com. M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N dot com um so uh those of us with uh, children in school um we are standing uh, agog and aghast at uh the slowly developing uh news consensus that uh there may be there's a problem with the way the teachers unions have been behaving in relation to schools and the pandemic um, little bits of I do have to. I'm, I had to interrupt you though. Okay. You said those of us with children in school, you should qualify that as ch- children. Those of us with children of schooling age, yes, because they're not in school. They're not in school, right? Okay, so but but uh, stories over the last week, story in the Washington Post about the DC Teachers Union, and I think in particular one of those little bits of things that comes out as a result of uh, social media an activist leader of the Chicago Teachers Union uh, demanding that schools remain closed because of the danger of the pandemic, being photographed on vacation in Puerto Rico, uh, having a flown there during a pandemic when you're not, when the CDC said you're not supposed to travel. Apparently it's okay to travel to Puerto Rico to hang out and have fun in a pandemic when then come back and say that schools shouldn't be reopened so that you can sit at home and watch the prices right instead of teaching the class or say you have office hours and watch the prices right i mean anything you can say that would be caricaturish and awful 
about the general behavior, not only of union officials, but of the teachers, uh, overwhelming majority of whom seem to think that it is the responsibility of our, uh, of the, the taxpayer to support them in their new luxuriant situation of being able to do whatever they want to do at home while children sit at home and fester. Um, my kids are in private school and have done pretty well under these circumstances, given the given. So I will now turn this over to Noah and Christine, who are not in such a, a, a grand position. So it's not as though this, you said she was photographed on vacation. It's not like there was some paparazzi hiding in a palm tree with a telephoto lens that just kind of captured her. She took a selfie and posted it on Instagram and because she has that much concern for the consequences of these actions. And, and she's judged appropriately the consequences of her actions, precisely zero. And and she described her, you know, beautiful setting at length too. She was, you know, she discussed <laughs> the, how, the, the, the glories of her, of her vacation. We're, we're going to go into yeah. old San Juan tonight to get delicious food. Which is lovely. Never been. <laughs> Agreed. It, it's, it is lovely. I, I will say that the, I, I was there on, on one of the uh, now, you know, I, I think uh, this, this period of, 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 of decadence in the magazine business is now over on one of these magazine, conservative magazine cruises. And we ended up in, in Sam wandering around and there's this beautiful building in old San Juan. I'm looking at it going, this is really amazing. And then I look up on the second story and there is the commercial sign. It's the Hooters. <laughs> it was the Hooters of old San Juan. Anyway, uh, Christine, please. Yeah, uh, my kids have not set foot in a in a school building since last March. So it'll all, we're coming up on almost a year where they have had to do entirely virtual learning. Um, DC Public Schools kept promising uh, that it would work with the uh, mayor of our city to to come up with a plan. They had all summer to come up with a plan. They did not. And every time they got close to a plan at the very last minute, the DC Teachers Union would back out of that plan. They'd say, yes, 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 this looks great. We're on board. And then literally the day before, back out. And the Washington Post story, the Washington Post is extremely sympathetic to the teachers union in this town. Even they could had to sort of say, oh, it's it's really tough. There's a lot of mistrust on both sides. Well, when you have an incompetent mayor and an incomp and an absolutely diabolically uh, uh, selfish teachers union uh, trying to argue what's best for children, the only losers are the kids. Right. When two elephants fight, it's the grass that gets trampled. This is the perfect example of this. And I think for for individual, there are lots of individual teachers. My my kids are are blessed with some of them who are working really hard to try to try to do the best they can. There's no way with this structure that that's possible. And then there are quite a few teachers who don't even bother to show up. Not they don't show up to class. They don't grade the homework assignments. They don't post grades. They don't show up to office hours. They are derelict in their duties, which would be fine in my opinion if I wasn't paying for that. My tax dollars are paying them a salary for them to do whatever they want with no consequences. That's not legitimate. And I think a lot more and more parents, even in a liberal city like mine, are starting to say, wait a minute. Um, in fact, we have a meeting tonight at uh, one of the schools for a lot of the parents to discuss reopening plans. The safety message is no longer uh, achieving the fear mongering that the teachers unions would like it to, because parents are now at a point now that vaccination is starting to happen saying, okay, now we actually want to get back in the classroom. They did a survey that was heavily weighted towards staying closed um, here in D.C., but even still, with liberal parents and a heavily weighted survey, more than half said we want our kids back in a classroom. So it'll be really interesting over the next few months to see if that happens. I'm, I, I put no faith in the union at all. I put very little faith in the mayor's office. But this is a huge problem nationwide, even for the places that have done some sort of reopening um, there's constant pressure on these school officials to, uh, you know, cave to the union as soon as there's a single case of COVID, for example. So this is an ongoing problem. I doubt my kids are going to be back in school this year. They will have had a full year without any in-person schooling. It's a hostage crisis. I and mean, we talked about how Republicans are beholden to their, to this, to Trump and his constituencies and Democrats are absolutely in the, in the very same position, particularly Democrats in these urban urban centers where education unions, teachers unions have so much clout. Um, they've made ridiculous demands. The goalposts continually move. Their objective is to keep the doors closed for the foreseeable future. They don't want to reopen. It's plainly obvious. And you hear elected officials and democratic elected officials express frustration with this in public, which is sort of a new phenomenon. 
but they can't figure out how to extricate themselves from the situation. It's been profoundly psychologically damaging to my kids. My first, just to illustrate the absurdity of this, my first grader came home the other day and, you know, we, he was, we, we pay a little bit extra to send them when we can't watch them during the day. Cause we have to watch them during the day to send him to a JCC to do his remote schooling at the JCC. Um, and he struggles obviously to do his work because he's very limited proctoring there. And he came home, he hadn't done his, his appropriate work and he was protesting this and said, no, but I, I watched my gym videos. You're what I said, my gym videos. And it's exactly what it sounds like. You're not, it's gym class, but it's not gym class insofar as you don't actually do anything. You literally watch people exercise. And this is, this is the requirement that they have to meet. Um, I would have loved it's that requirement. Hard, it's hard to think of something more Orwellian. Yeah, me too. That's my, my, my idea. <laughs> That's of my gym dream, class. dream listen, gym class, yeah. But listen, I mean, I, I think something interesting it's happening, and again, the, as I've said many times, said yesterday, and all this, like the political consequences of this are not going to be immediate. But there is a there something is corroding here that could go in all kinds of interesting and difficult and complicated ways um, as this uh, sentimentalism about the edu- about the public education industry meets the reality of what it's like for the people who actually have skin in the game as parents who have to navigate it. Um, This has been something that only people of a sort of elevated political consciousness have been dealing with over the last 30 or 40 years. Most people, I think, say, well, this is just school. You know, they know best. They're the teachers. They're the administrators. They know what they're doing. This is not my field. We'll do whatever they want, right? And we'll follow them and they should get paid more and we should, you know, the property taxes is fine if they go up to support schools and stuff like that. Um, we are now seeing the development of a kind of union aristocracy that is asking for special privileges in the midst of uh, unique challenges. And, um, and uh, that is a very strange kind of thing to demand uh, and, under these circumstances. And so when people say, you know what, uh, maybe you're not heroes. Maybe the real heroes aren't the teachers. Uh, maybe I'm the hero and they suck. Maybe they stink. Maybe they're the DMV. You know, uh, there are all kinds of public officials that people don't like, you know, they don't like the person who writes uh, parking tickets and they don't like IRS auditors and they don't like, people at the DMV or people at the welfare office. But generally speaking, they have been told and they believe that the people who are responsible for the education of America's children are doing so out of the goodness of their heart, out of a commitment to public service, out of a love of children and all of this. And we are seeing that this is not true. And a lot of us have thought this has not been true for a great many years, but you have to be deep into it to get there. And there's and I and I want to make a point about the distinction between individual teachers, many of whom are really doing the best they can in a difficult situation and who I have great admiration for and the bloated educational bureaucracy that makes a lot of the decisions for them. And they don't have a say in them any more than the parents do. Those people like that union, you know, the Chicago Teachers Union woman are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. They are not they have they're well paid. They have pensions and benefits that, that rival those in the private sector. These are not suffering you know, uh, earnest uh, saints who are just, you know, barely making a a living wage, they are well paid. And it's that group and and that bloated bureaucracy, which we also see in higher education, um, that is costing taxpayers a lot of the money. So when taxes are raised, it's not going to get your teachers better, better classroom supplies and higher, higher wages. It's paying that bloated bureaucracy that has its own self-interest first and children's needs second. Look, that's a good, an important distinction to make. There are good teachers and that the unions are the bad guys here. But nevertheless, um, they are not absolved of their complicity in this situation, each and every one of them, just as Republicans cannot be absolved of their complicity in the hostage crisis they are currently in. This is this is their bed. They made it. I think a lot of you listeners, if you have school-aged children, you've probably noticed that your teachers are a little bit younger this year. Maybe there's a couple of young ones who uh, just got out of college. I know I have a couple of those. You know why? It's because the older ones didn't come back. 
and they didn't come back and they didn't get fired. They were doing just fine. They just decided not to go. Um, this is a condition that they benefit from and they take full responsibility for the fallout as a result. Okay. Uh, guys, let me just ask you, how did you choose which internet service provider to use? The sad thing is most of us have very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions they serve. Then they use this monopoly power to take advantage of customers, data caps, streaming throttles, the list goes on. But worst of all, many ISPs log your internet activity and sell that data to other big tech companies or advertisers. To prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all my devices with ExpressVPN. And what is ExpressVPN, you ask? Well, it's a simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your ISP cannot see any of your activity. Just think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, every site you visit, every video you watch, every message you send gets tracked by ISPs or other tech giants who can then sell your information for profit. That's the reason I honestly recommend ExpressVPN. It's right there on my phone. It's right there on my iPad. And it's on my computer as the best way to shield your online activity from your ISP. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you're protected. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. So stop handing over your personal data ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with the VPN I use to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary right now to learn more. Um, I think we should just make note of the fact that um, uh, tragic uh Tragic things are going on. Tragic and monstrous things are going on in Hong Kong as democracy activists are being rounded up in mass arrests. Um, I think uh, so far uh, it's uh, 53 people were arrested last night, but uh, uh, thousands of files and documents were taken from their offices. And I think we can assume that they are uh, going to uh, be sweeping up more people into this dragnet in advance of another set of elections since the Hong Kongers uh, decided not to take lying down the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to turn Hong Kong a once, um, you know, free protectorate of, of Great Britain into uh, just another uh, satrapy of the, um, of the Communist Party as President Xi and his minions uh, continue to give the lie to the idea that China's economic prosperity uh, is leading inexorably to political uh, liberalization. Um, this is a, a, a terrible, terrible thing that is going on. And um, I will say that I was heartened to see incoming Secretary of State Tony Blinken uh, condemn this uh, yesterday and say that uh, uh, the incoming Biden administration will stand with the protesters. Um, that is a That is a good thing that that was done. It's a good thing that it was said. And uh, every everybody who is uh, understandably concerned about the nature of the incoming Biden administration should take heart from the fact that at least in this one area, they are saying and doing the right thing. So for Noah, Christine, and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. We'll see you tomorrow. Keep the candle burning.